Hello, and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. And in this episode, uh, we will begin our coverage of Heinlein's 1950 works, with uh, starting with uh, Farmer in the Sky. Uh, we will follow that up by The Man Who Sold the Moon and... Uh, what's it? Charlie? Dennis Callery? Some, some story like that? Um, I haven't got to it yet. Um, Destination Moon, which uh, was technically published in this time as a novelization of his screenplay. Destination Moon, which is kind of loosely based on the first half or so of rocket ship Galileo. I don't know. I, I think with us looking at Destination, or The Man Who Sold the Moon, which is a much more interesting story, I think we can get away with skipping Destination Moon, um, which again is just like a novella that's sort of a tie-in to his to the screenplay Heinlein wrote. If you want to watch Destination Moon, you can. I, I probably won't have much to say about it. That didn't already come up in Rocket Ship Galileo. It's not very good. It's not really particularly worthy of our time. So just three works, four episodes on 1950, and that's going to be the case going forward for the most part where we're going to be pretty much the stories are going to phase out pretty soon. There's a few major stories yet, all our zombies, for instance, and the man who sold the moon, but mostly we'll be sticking with novels from here uh, to the end of this series, which is, of course, very exciting uh, because some of these novels are really, really great. Uh, of course, we also have a lot of juveniles. We have about a decade's worth of juveniles ahead of us as well. Um, now, he starts to publish more uh, adult novels at the same time, like uh, Double Star, uh, doorway to Summer. There must be a few others um, alongside that. So s basically it's one juvenile a year and then some years there's two novels for us to look at. So um, Not that some short stories won't pop in from time to time and visit us, but they'll just be uh, just, uh, just here and there. So anyway, let's do Farmer in the Sky. Farmer in the Sky so far would... Uh, without a doubt, is my favorite of the juveniles up to this point. Um, I've read a few others to compare it to, like uh, The Rolling Stones and Between Planets. However, of the four we've looked at, this I think is the strongest. Uh, it's not quite as philosophically like interesting as maybe aspects of Red Planet, um, but as uh, just in terms of its story and its characterization and our and kind of the maybe some even the research that goes into it, the thought that went into it, the the optimism of it. The there's some pessimism in the novel too. I'll get to, and it's annoying, but it's something we're, we're not going to be able to avoid in this era of science fiction. To come right to it, Malthusianism. It seems hard to avoid in this epoch of science fiction writing, but uh, overall, great stuff. I love uh, his him giving credit to ecology a lot more than he does in his other works, where he's much more focused on physics and, and, and math. Uh, and here he, he does actually confront directly his preference for math and physics and engineering and those disciplines and admits, yeah, ecology has a lot to teach us. And if we want to terraform you know, Ganymede or the Mars or, Mars or someplace like that, we're going to have to like come to terms with 
ecology and ecological systems. And there's a lot of great stuff in Farmer in the Sky on that aspect. Most of that comes in the second half of the novel because like all the juveniles, they're structured. This one is structured kind of like all the ones we've read so far where really the first half is set up and the second half is more of the drama and the adventure of the story. Um, so we've seen that pretty much in every juvenile so far where the first half is really devoted to world building, the setting, and the... You know, and setting up the characters and, and who the, this young man and, and all of them so far, it's been a young man, right, at the center of the story. And I assume that's not going to change all the way up through um, have, have Space Suit Will Travel, which I think is the last of the juveniles, even Starship Troopers, if you want to add that as an honorary member of this series. So anyways, um, let's let's jump into this, I guess. Um like I said, published by Scrivener in 1950. Um, Satellite Scout was a, like a novella version of this, published in, serially in Boy's Life. Um, so this is a Boy Scout story. Now, I I have a vague recollection. of I thought I read this before. I really did. If you would just ask me, did you read Farmer in the Sky? I would have said yes. But then when I was reading it, it's like, I don't remember a lot of this. So I might have been reading it at like a dark time or I might have been reading it when I was really busy with other stuff and just listening with, with one ear. Um, but that's a shame because there's some really, really excellent stuff in this story. And the Boy Scout stuff is, is uh, marginal to the story. It works without the Boy Scout element. It just adds another layer of drama and, and, and kind of an interesting aspect to our character and to his personal arc and adventure. It also, of course, is probably feeding into his audience at the time. Um, We've seen other Boy Scout stories. This one is the most well-developed. And the one where we actually see um, actual skills from merit badges and things playing a role, which is unlike some of the others where it's just a general Boy Scouts are a little more awesome than normal boys, and therefore they can do things. That's the feeling you got in like the short stories, like um, Nothing Ever Happens on the Moon, or what's the other one? Uh, not the Ordeal in Space. Although the Black Hills of Luna, those are kind of Boy Scout stories where it's just, you know, the, the Boy Scout character saves the day because he's a Boy Scout. It's here we actually see, you know, merit badges that actually connect to what they're trying to do here. And obviously the big story here is terraforming Ganymede um, and what that's going to mean. And, and there's a lot more thought put into what that gonna, that's going to mean in respect to the world to Earth, the solar system, and yeah, the broader environment. And by the way, um, we are clearly in the Green Hills of Earth uh, world, the future history world, because Green Hills of Earth is mentioned a few times in the story. So we can place this one in the future history uh, in the early days of humanity's expansion into space. Now, something else I, I've been meaning to say and I don't want to delay you jumping into the story too much. But what, one thing I've been meaning to talk about with you is, because it keeps coming up and, and I never really grapple with it, is how much of Heinlein in this period of time is coming to, is really trying to almost present an allegory. And certainly a very dramatized and optimistic allegory of, of the early, of like the British Atlantic world. Right, humanity into space is paralleled in many ways with humanities, well, European hum humans, after the humans are earning the Americas, but 
like the British settlement of North America. And I think this is maybe the clearest representation of that. Um, obviously, we have it hinted at in the Green Hills of Earth stories, where there's this idea there's a certain pioneer type. That's the main theme of that, those stories, and how you really can't go back again, and how once you go there, you bring your culture, but that culture is also changed by the local environment. All that stuff, of course, parallels that. But here, with the fate of the settlers, the colonists on Ganymede, they're really be, you know, becoming indentured servants in a land with unlimited, in an area with unlimited land, right? There's no indigenous people here. Although once again, we get a deus ex machina with a, like the discovery of a, of an alien spaceship that visited here before and crash landed there. And, and that allows us to have our moment of salvation at the end of the story. But that, uh, that aside, I think we have, we don't have indigenous people on, on Ganymede. Um, we don't even like have a microbe. It's basically a dead planet when they get there. Okay, maybe it's our lichens. Oh, I think that well, everything was brought. Everything was brought by humans um, here. And, and that whole ecology aspect of it is well developed here. But that aside, the, like the labor system that has to be implemented to get people to work and get people to kind of pay into the system and pay into the imperial project when there's like all this land that people can just kind of cultivate on their own is is dealt with here similarly how it was dealt with in the americas which was very, various forms of forced labor or debt peonage right um obviously we had slavery in the americas and that's not dealt with directly here but metaphorically it is in a way where these settlers come to ganymede and are told basically whatever deal you had with the with earth with the colonial bureaucracy that's not a deal with us we're our own thing and we need you to work to pay for you know the supplies and the machinery and the things you're going to use to set up your farm so basically be sharecroppers for for five to seven years like an indentured servant pay off your debts pay off do pay your part then you can get your land and get your your uh you know, pay dirt and everything you need to start up a, a farm, right? Um, that's that's the only way to kind of keep them from basically going off and starting a farm, like being homesteaders, right? That's the goal of these settlers, though, is to be homesteaders, and then that they can't or they're frustrated in that effort because of limited supplies, uh, too many migrants, not enough infrastructure. All this is thought out really well. And on top of that, we have an interesting family dynamic. We have some cool side characters. We have some philosophy about population. And it all comes together really, really well in this book. I'm a big fan of this one. Um, so anyways, uh, let's, let's get into Chapter 1, Earth, where we have, uh, where basically we have two characters in the first part of the story. And throughout, there's, there's basically two characters and the others interact with them throughout. And it's George and Bill. Uh, now, Bill calls George George, even though he's his father. That's just, I think, a Heinlein thing. It's, we, I think we've seen it before. In the future, kids call their parents by their first name. Um, their mother, or his mother, Bill's mother, has died. And so George is an engineer raising Bill the best he can. Bill's pretty impressive as a young man, as you would expect in these juveniles. None of these young men are not impressive. Some are forgettable, but they're all super talented. 
and Bill's one of those. Although he is a little more normy, I think, than some of the other boys we've met because he is just sort of going to school. And yeah, he's a success. He's an Eagle Scout, so he's a Boy Scout. So that takes some gumption and some skill. But he's just in school, and he's excelling at school, obviously. I don't think any of Heinlein's heroes here are going to be like dullards. I'd like to see that some, some in, in some future juvenile where we can see a more normal kid. But I think this is the most normal we got. Like, we've had, like, the Red Planet kid is special because he's got that pet. Um, but he's also very rebellious and ambitious and, and all that. And then the rocket ship Galileo kids are super smart pioneers of space, the first people on the moon, <laughs> except for the Nazis. Um, and then Space Cadet, of course, we have a young man who achieves what very few young men can do, and that's enter into the Space Patrol. So they're all sort of special. This one isn't so special because he's just one of many settlers. He doesn't have that same uniqueness, I think, that some of the others have. But that makes him a more realistic and down-to-earth and well-drawn character, actually. I think it's good for the, for the story that... Um, that he has to struggle to learn stuff, and he's he kind of has to mature and grow up a little bit uh, in some concrete way, especially in terms of his family dynamics and all that. Um, now, as in all these Heinlein juveniles, there are lessons he has that the, that are being tried to that are being taught to boys, and one here is perhaps overcoming grief and taking on new challenges with an open mind, while without losing t connection to your roots. Uh, I think it's. You have his mother, who he can't totally forget, but he's also got to embrace his new family that is going to be with him in Ganymede and to learn to love the entirety of his new family because his father remarries someone who has a kid. Um, so he has to learn to sacrifice and be part of that family, new family environment, even though it's, as it turns out, quite a struggle for his stepsister. And then we have, but we also have the Boy Scouts thing, which is a tradition he carries. He literally wears it under his regular clothes because he can't take his uniform. He has to like starve himself for a few days so he can get just the right weight so he can carry his Boy Scout uniform with him. That ultimately saves the ship, or at least part of the ship, thankfully. But he, uh, but it's a symbol of him bringing some tradition with him, and he tries to recreate that on Ganymede only to find there's a new version of the Boy Scouts on Ganymede that has a very different kind of culture and tradition that he has to come to terms with. So I think that's a, a theme here in general. And it's, it's a settler experience. It's the colonialist experience, for better or for worse, is taking a culture from a homeland, bringing it to a new place, laying the groundwork, and becoming something new out of that, right? So, which, is, again, makes me think of America, which is that. It's... it's old world cultures being replanted in a new environment and emerging into something new and distinctive. So anyways, chapter one is mostly just setting up our characters and setting up the world building. Here we, we know some things about Bill, that he's a Boy Scout, that he's a musician, he plays the accordion, that, uh, that his father's interested in emigrating to Ganymede, and he seems to have set up that as the plan for the family. We also learn that the Earth is rationing food because of an overpopulation crisis. And here's why I want to deal with the Malthusianism of it. There's literally a scene where they're having a conversation and Bill's saying, like, look at how much more we're producing. Look at the, I, I saw the out, 
you know, like how more productive our agriculture is this year from last. Why are we still rationing food, or why is our rations less? And then and the father's like, did you see the report about Chinese births? And it's like, oh, well, the Chinese were having more, more kids. Population's growing. Oh, therefore, that's why we're starving, right? Blaming uh, poorer countries for having too many kids. This is a cornerstone of Malthusian thought, the idea that people, especially poor people, are only consumers. That's the real fault of Malthusian thinking. Whether there are limits to Earth's carrying capacity, I, I don't want to get in those debates or, or guesstimate what that could, carrying capacity could, could be, right? Obviously, and, and to what degree would human presence have irreversible impact on the environment? Obviously, those are debates and questions, real concerns we're having. That's not what we have here. What we have here is basically we're starving because there's too many poor people, which is how Malthus originally framed it, that if you have, if you just allow natural processes to take cold and you allow, you know, you, this will balance it out. If you protect poor people, if you let them reproduce, which this society seems to be letting them do, you're going to run, uh, run out of food eventually, right? So the best thing to do is let them die, right? Like Ebenezer Scrooge says, let them die and decrease the surplus population. So this is all really horrible, obviously. Um, but that's the world we have here. And the, the character's point of view is in this, in this world. Um, now, ultimately, like, so we get the sense here that Ganymede is then the escape valve for an overpopulated Earth. We're going to find out later on that's not the case. That's not even possible, right? Like, if you just take the increased population each year, it would, you know, and move them to Ganymede, you know, Ganymede couldn't even sustain that influx of people each day, even if they could get moved out there, which they can't. You know, this is just a trickle of people leaving. So it's not about that. It's more about, and I'm kind of jumping right to the punchline of the story, I guess, but it's more a bastion of human survival when Earth is going to fall into civil war and barbarism, right? Um, I'm not quite sure where this fits in the timeline of the future history, but if you, like, take the revolt of 2100, that stuff, it does seem those predictions sort of come true here. Um, I, again, I don't think Heinlein's that serious about the future history and connects everything together. The world building is certainly there, and it takes work on the reader's they have to kind of line up the stories in chronological order in the future history series and see how they connect. And is that really worth doing? I'm not convinced of that yet. Uh, but I'm sure there's Heinlein fans who have created timelines like this before. So anyways, uh, I, I don't remember if it's in this chapter or the next chapter where George tells Bill, well, I'm going to go to Ganymede. You stay here, finish your studies. And he re rebels at this. And so that's his first effort of kind of standing up to his father and saying, I want to go to Ganymede too. We're going to go as a family. We're, we're together in this. And then the second uh, chapter is called The Green-Eyed Monster. And the Green-Eyed Monster, of course, is jealousy. And Bill is jealous of, um, of his father, essentially, for remarriage. The jealousy comes out of his father's choice to remarry, I think. It also might speak to this other character who wants to go to Ganymede and and Bill wants to, because they're friends, wants to help him do that. And then something happens that he, like the father doesn't want to, but I also get the sense that he really didn't have the courage or the ability to do that. So 
he makes an excuse like, oh, dad wants me here to invest in the business or whatever. And I think there's jealousy about between those who go to Ganymede and those who don't. Um, but at the heart of it is the jealousy that Bill feels over his father getting a new family. And we learned that, yeah, that Gan the Ganymede wants families. They don't want, or at least the colonial policy is they want families, not single people to go there because they're trying to create a population of people who see Ganymede as their home. And, and you know, it's the same reason why like single men were a problem in colonial Virginia. Um, they're a little more rambunctious and rebellious, and family was seen as a way of kind of stabilizing society. So anyways, the chapter begins with them going, preparing to go, and there's a nice side discussion here about his, um, his musical instrument. It's an accordion he wants to take with him. It's a really, I don't know why he wants to save an accordion, but apparently he's good at it, but it's super heavy. It doesn't fit the weight requirements, so he has to register it as a cultural item. This gives us a chance to have him sing in front of the board, Green Hills of Earth. Uh, so we, we learn he's a decent musician. And so we need culture on Ganymede, so we need some musicians. So he's allowed to pack the accordion as a, as a, as a, like a colonial item, not a personal item. Um, it's also here we, we meet uh, Molly, who is uh, George's new wife, and Peggy, her, her daughter. So he's got a stepsister. Um, basically, this chapter is setting up their departure, and that's what we get in chapter three uh, called Sp uh, Ship Bifrost, which is the name for the shuttle. It's a nice name for a shuttle. Uh, it's the shuttle going to the Mayflower, which is the colonial ship. It's in this chapter he makes the decision to save his scout uniform um, from the incinerator um, by losing a few pounds and wearing it under his clothes. So he, he has the scout uniform with him physically on him, uh, on him when he gets on the ship, which is a nice little addition to the character. He just can't bear to give it up. Um, and we also learn that some of these colonists are not really cut out. They don't really have the preparation or the planning. And some doubt is cast on how selective the process is for choosing the colonists. Um, we learn later on that maybe this is not is due to some people basically getting on the ship for through political corruption. But some people just seem to not have what it takes. But enough people want to just leave Earth because conditions are getting worse and the rationing and there's hope of bounty. And that's what we do get. Ganymede, as it turns out, despite having all sorts of developmental growing pains, is, at least in terms of food, like a cornucopia. Right? Again, I think it's hard not to think of America because that's how Americans saw their New World experience as one of, of development and frontier life, but also one of bounty and, and prosperity, all at the expense of indigenous people who we don't have on Ganymede to complicate the story. So this is a fault of Heinlein, though. I think fair enough, with, all, you know, with all fairness, Heinlein does include indigenous people on Mars and shows them as the winners, as, as the superior um, technological uh, species in some ways. Um, we, we spend a couple chapters, or a chapter and a half at least, on the Bifrost. Um, and there's not much to say about those chapters, I suppose. Nothing too interesting. It's just the experience of seeing Earth for the first time and, and all that kind of stuff, which we already experienced in Rocketship Galileo, the awe and wonder of that kind of thing. The story starts to get interesting in chapter 5, 6, and 7, which is all spent on the Mayflower. Uh, we meet Captain Harkness. And in fact, that's the name of chapter 5, uh, Captain Harkness. 
And this is start, this chapter begins with their entry onto the Mayflower, which uh, we learn is instantly the first thing we learn about is it's smelly, but it's it's obviously huge. But there's limited opportunities for young boys to cultivate themselves on the ship. Eventually, they do get classes, and we get some nice classroom scenes here with uh, hilarious lines like. You know, how far you've gotten in school, young boy? And the kid replies, oh, only through grade school calculus. Uh, that's, that's another little Heinlein moment, if there ever was one. In Heinlein's future, you take calculus in grade school, whether you like it or not. And that's just basic math, right? Um, oh, yeah, so the opening scene is actually our introduction to Captain Harkness in Chapter 5 is, is interesting. We, he gives very strict orders that no one leaves their bunk because everyone's placed on the ship for perfect balance while during acceleration. But some people don't follow these rules and they go to the captain's mast after the ship is stabilized and, and through accelerating and on its way to Ganymede. And the captain actually does punish people who moved um, the ship for threatening the ship. So we see a kind of an authority established, but a benevolent authority, an authority that wants the best for the people. He's not considered cruel. He's just doing what needs to be done. It's this cruelty. It's just science. It's the cold equations. Um, and then the cruelty is you're going to wash dishes during the trip, which is not the worst thing in the world. But you get the sense that that woman is kind of one of these political, got their name on the list through politics. And, and maybe it's not someone used to uh, that much physical labor. I don't know, but we get the we get a scene at the captain's mast, the like the court, which is I think on purpose almost paralleling the court of honor of the Boy Scouts, right? Because you got that they make a big deal of that here too, is forming the court of honor when he wants to start the Boy Scouts on the ship, the the Boy Scouts of Ganymede, you know, where the court of honor is the adults and older scouts giving awards or. I don't remember ever punishment being a part of it, but I'm sure it could be in serious circumstances. Um, I never, I always remember the Court of Honor just as like Parents Day almost, like when the parents would show up and you get awards and merit badges and things, but make, it kind of makes a big deal of it. Maybe it was back in those days, a bigger deal than I remember it to be. Um, then we get a chapter equals MC squared, uh, and here we learn more about the ship. We we find the we learn that the kids on the ship eventually starts going to classes and going to school, and, and with the engineer Mr. Ortega, we learn how dangerous and risky that job is. We also learn how the ship works as a matter conversion vessel. So we actually have our three generations of spacecraft discussed here. The first was the rocket ship Gal. Well, first was the V2s, and then he starts there, uh, just the regular fossil fuel propelled ro rockets. Then we have the rocket ship Galileo, which is imp implied here as the nuclear powered ship. And then the third generation is the mass conversion ship, which the Mayflower is, which is why the title E equals M, or the chapter e equals MC squared. Um, now, also in this chapter, they decide, the boys decide to revive the Boy Scouts. So some People were scouts before, and I think they recruit some more, and they basically form the institution of the Boy Scouts of Ganymede, um, and that's done in this chapter too. Then we get to chapter seven, which is scouting in space, which is a um, 
were, which is just about a, more about the establishing the institution of the Boy Scouts. Actually, it might have all been done here. Because, yeah, this is when they argue about the names. They try to decide what the name of the Boy Scout troop will be. Um, and they all pick different names from different parts of the ship they're in and, or, or back home. And there's an interesting kind of conversation about how much are we going to be of the space and how much are we going to be of home. It, it's really a green hills of earth kind of conversation. Uh, chapter eight is called Trouble, and this is Bill saving the ship with his, literally with his Boy Scout uniform. So, yeah, to some degree, there's a little bit of symbolism here. It's not very hidden, but uh, there's a, a little meteorite hits the ship right in Bill's dorm with the other boys. A lot of the boys panic and freak out and are screaming, thinking they're going to die. But Bill puts down his Boy Scout uniform, puts down pillows, eventually saves the ship, but at the cost of his uniform. Later, engineers come and repair it. He goes back to the captain's mast as a hero and is publicly rewarded for his decisiveness and his, 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 you know, his ability to save his bunkmates. It's not presented as maybe this would have been a huge threat to the ship, but certainly it would have been a threat to the boys in the dorm, or in, the, in, those, in that bunk area that was hit. So that kind of wraps up the story of of the Mayflower, and I, I think a lot is set up here technologically in world building and the motivations of the boys and this tension between this transition from being people on Earth to people of space. And I think the Boy Scouts of Ganymede is a, is, is a symbol of that transition in, in some way. Okay, um, next we have the moons of Jupiter. Uh, which is basically about the arrival of Ganymede. And most of this chapter is focused on like the physics of it, the geography of the, of the Jupiter system. Um, a little more interaction with Molly and his, his, his new family, but perhaps not too much to say about here because really that's, the story takes a new direction in chapters uh, like 10 and 11. Chapter 10 is called The Promised Land, and this is almost an ironic title because what happens is the settlers um, learn that conditions are not what were promised them, which obviously, as in any colonial project, there's going to be boosters who are going to exaggerate how great the experience and the environment will be. And they feel quite betrayed by this. The settlers feel quite betrayed. Some lodge protests. But what are you going to do? You're on Ganymede. You can't get back. You can't afford to get back. You're stuck there. And basically, your only option is to homestead and hope for the best. Right? But what are you going to eat until you get there? And the details of how difficult homesteading is are laid out in future chapters. For instance, even if you have the pay dirt, which you're getting from others, from the colony or, or from the colonial bureaucracy, the pay dirt is very important. You still have to like mix it with garbage and mix it with other dirt and cultivate it. It's got to, you have to bring worms. You got to, the pay dirt has to like expand into, you got to infect the bacteria from the pay dirt has to go out and enrich all the soil that's there. That's very challenging um, to do. It's a long process. It means you can't have a crop in the first year, uh, although they have a couple growing seasons a year on, on Ganymede. Um, there's no trees 
you know, at one point, Bill, Bill says, like, I'll bring in tobacco when we can. And the father's like, well, maybe 20 years from now, maybe we can afford to grow tobacco. That's how long it's going to take to get the soil ready. So you're dependent on others for a while. You can't be a pure homesteader until later, which is true of anyone, right? Anyone thinks you can be an independent homesteader. I'm sure some people pulled it off. And historically, we, we see examples of that. But even, you know, even now, let's say you're living out in the woods by yourself. You probably have internet, right? You probably have electricity that's, or even, let's say you power it with solar panels. You're still getting those solar panels from others. You're still dependent on others as much as you want to be an independent farmer. So the, the other, the established sellers are just like, yeah, you can basically be a laborer until you like get your farm going and that will let you eat. And of course, that's not the deal they wanted. It seems, what other option do they have, right? It may not be what they were promised, but what good is protesting going to be? You're already on Ganymede. And you're under the authority, essentially, of the settlers that are already there. And that's, the, that's where we leave off halfway through the novel. So in the next episode, I'll finish up my thoughts on Farmer in the Sky and get into the experiences Bill, George, and the other settlers have on uh, Ganymede, the people they meet, and how they do establish themselves as Ganymedean homesteaders. It's a pretty epic, awesome, awesome tale. And I really enjoyed reading it. And if you're reading along, I hope you're enjoying it as well. So please let me know what you think of this story and uh, this novel. Um, leave your comments, leave an, a review, uh, or send me an email, and I will try to get back to you. So anyways, uh, that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next time.